Health Care Unfiltered. It is Tuesday morning, and it is your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know that we tackle a variety of topics of interest to patients and to physicians. And today's podcast is about survivorship and the adolescents and young adults and the research that occurs in that arena. And I couldn't be happier than to host Dr. Allison Rosenthal, who is a hematologist, an internist, and oncologist at the Mayo Clinic. She practices at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. She is a Mayo Clinic scholar in the Division of Hematology and Oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine. Allison is going to share with us her personal story and how she was diagnosed with a form of acute leukemia how this actually affected the way she takes care of patients and led to subsequent interest in research, uh, in survivorship and adolescents and young adults type of malignancies. It is always fascinating to know how personal journey affects academic interest and what people wanna do after they survive their illness. But I also think it's not really clear for a lot of folks what the definition of survivorship is and what patients who survive cancer need to do to return back to normal life. When we say young adults and adolescents type of research, what do we actually mean? And what type of research is being done in that patient population? All of these issues and more are going to be discussed with Dr. Allison Rosenthal on today's podcast on Healthcare Unfiltered. And I did tell her that there is a book in her story, and I hope that she actually writes that book. There's a lot that we can learn from that book. She is an inspiring hematologist and oncologist, and I hope that you listen to the entire podcast. And as always, send your feedback. You can do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or by sending me an email. Don't forget to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered, rate it, and write a brief review on the podcast. This will make it more searchable. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Navhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, or on my website. I appreciate your support. And of course, I'm going to tell you that if you're in the mood to find a book to read, don't forget to check out Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials, and the search for justice. Check it out. And if you read it and like it, don't forget to leave a review and a rating on Goodreads and or Amazon. Without further ado, Dr. Allison Rosenthal on Healthcare Unfiltered. So Allison, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and talk about adolescent young adult cancer. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do uh, day in and day out. And how's your how's your academic and uh, day or the pie chart, I usually call it. How's it split? So I guess I'm originally from Chicago. Um, so all of my sport allegiances lie with Chicago <laughs> Um, hence some of the flags behind me. I don't know if you can see. Um, I have been in Arizona since high school. Um, I was a collegiate gymnast. Um, well, I guess I did gymnastics for half my life all the way through college. So that includes being a collegiate gymnast. 
Um, so that's what brought us out to the West Coast. So living in Arizona to, to train at a gym here when I was in high school, left for college, um, knew my whole life I wanted to be a doctor. My original plan was um, to do orthopedic surgery and do sports medicine. Um, my plan has obviously altered from that original path. Um, I currently work as a lymphoma specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Um, here I am leading the effort at Mayo overall to build an adolescent and adult cancer program. Um, I also co-direct our CAR-T program, which takes a bit of time. Um, outside of work, um, I try to remain as active as possible. My happy place is San Diego, so I spend as much time there when I have downtime as I can. Um, I'm fortunate to have my family here. Um, so I guess that's a little bit so about that. So you wanted to do orthopedic and then you shifted to oncology. Yeah, it was a slow shift. Uh, tell, no. us, tell us about that. How did this happen? Yeah, so my second year of medical school during spring break, um, I thought I had the flu. Um, I went to our local emergency department. I was ironically supposed to go meet some of my athletic friends in Las Vegas to celebrate the end of finals. They were already there. So being halfway through medical school, I went to the ER and I was like, I have the flu. I just need you to hydrate me a little bit, make me feel a bit better. I, I got to get on a plane. Um, the ER doctor came in, saw me, said, all right, let's run some tests. Never even came back. The next person I met was a hematologist. Um, who came into the room and said, you know, we're worried about your blood counts. You want a bone marrow biopsy now or tomorrow? And I was like, what? Um, pretty shocking. So I wound up being diagnosed with acute leukemia. I had APL, um, took a year off of school, spent three weeks in the hospital getting induction therapy, went back to school, still committed to doing orthopedics. What year um, was that? What years was that, Allison? Oh, it was seven. 16 or 17 years ago now. So my, I don't know, my second year of medical school would have been 2000 and. So your, indu your induction was, uh, you know, you got the Donna Rubison, like, what did you get? Oh yeah. So we, I got seven plus three. Um, and then the after protocol, um, there was a national shortage of cytarabine at the time. So I had consolidation with, with, um, mitoxantrone. So I got the red and the blue. The, at that time, the, the maintenance was like ALL maintenance. So it was two years of Atra plus 6-MP and methotrexate, which is really hard. Um, I couldn't tolerate it even as an athlete, um, you know, coming into my diagnosis. So I wound up getting an extended course of Atra um, without the other stuff. Um, but I was on treatment for two and a half years. So that wasn't part of the plan. Yeah. I mean, for those of uh, folks who are listening um, the good news, obviously, the APL is a form of leukemia that's curable in, in most patients, but not in all. Um, but it is, at the time, it was, I mean, aggressive chemotherapy, oral chemotherapy, maintenance. So it's like a two, three-year ordeal. Yeah, we do things much differently now, fortunately, for, for people who are being diagnosed these days. But it worked, importantly. Um, you know, I had a, a tremendous um, community doctor. I actually got treated by a community doctor who had the sense to send me to an academic center just for a second opinion to make sure everything they were doing was on on par with what they would do there. Um, so everything went well, got back to school, you know, went into remission, went back to school. My oncologist kept telling me, you, you're, you, sh you really should do oncology. Like, I can just see you doing it. This is going to, you know, be meaningful to your patients down the line. And I said, you're out of your mind. Let me let me go on and, and fix shoulders and hips and knees. That's all I really want to do. Um, Slowly but surely, I started to come around to the idea that I might have a different path for for me. Um, 
applied as a backup plan, honestly, to internal medicine, I, I did zero. So anyone who's gone to medical school, you have to do like a certain number of rotations in different specialties. So you're well-rounded and can make a good decision about what you want to do for a career. Zero internal medicine rotations. I turned them all into sports med rotations. So when I got accepted into internal medicine residency, I had seen zero diabetes patients <laughs> and done zero management of any sort of inpatient, whatever. So, so that happened. And I still was like, okay, not sure if I want to do this. It's still pretty close to home. Um, and then every time I was on call, I kept getting cancer patients. And every time somebody needed help with something, it was a cancer patient. And I just needed, I think, to open my eyes and accept the fact that there was a bigger plan for me and that this ended up being exactly what I was put here to do. So wound up in oncology did my training here at the Mayo Clinic, did some additional training when I decided to specialize in lymphoma at Sloan Kettering. Um, that was sponsored by Mayo and then came back here. So you mainly, um, you take care of lymphoma patients. Um, and do you do any, um, is it, do you do any inpatient service? Do you do uh, lab work or just clinical research? How, how do you spend your, your time? So I do quite a bit of inpatient service. I attend on our BMT and transplant um, and CAR-T service. Um, I don't have a lab. Um, I do some clinical research. I'm interested in outcomes research, um, which largely involves survivorship-related issues. Um, I previously worked as the associate program director of our fellowship, so I enjoy the education part of my job as well, though just due to there only being one of me and, and many things that I want to be doing. I've, I've stepped out of that role in the last couple of years, but yeah. um, my work is in clinic. You know, the, I don't want to ask a cliche question because I think, you know, uh, anybody I've interviewed who has been a patient with cancer and became an oncologist, you know, I've always asked how did this really affect your clinical care? But I actually don't think it's a cliche question because I usually get truthfully very different answers. And I think we all react differently to certain stresses in life. And there's no question when you are, you know, you're you're an athlete, you're young, and you know, you're you're the last thing on your mind is you're gonna get leukemia and chemotherapy. So life had different plans for you. As you were going through through the process, maybe you didn't have a lot of time to react because everything is like boom, 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 you're getting so many things, but then things slow down and you get a chance to react. Do you recall how this really affected how you viewed clinical care, medical care, patient care? How much of your own experience have an impact on how you take care of people? I think a huge impact. So I, I'm also an osteopath. So I, I went to DO school. Um, I don't do any of the additional like manipulative medicine or anything that we were trained to do, but I do think that philosophy of, of taking care of the whole person and looking at things from a global point of view better fits how I like to take care of patients. So it was somewhat accidental that I went to DO school. I applied to lots of schools, but um, it, it fits how I like to, to care for my patients. Um, so I think I have a sensitivity for some of the uncertainty, the discomfort, and the scary part of being a cancer patient. And I'm able, certainly not to put myself in everyone's shoes because everyone has their own individual experience, but I'm I'm able to be a little bit more sensitive, I think, to that just because I've sat in that chair. 
I definitely had to learn with time when it was appropriate to share anything about my experience with patients where that might be helpful and where it might not be helpful for them. So I think that was a, a learning experience that you know comes with the maturity of just doing this for a while. Um, there's a lot about me online and I spoke very publicly about my experience. And so anybody who's doing research and coming to see me kind of knows a little bit about that. And some of my patients choose to see me because they know I'm a survivor. So I, I think it has a big impact on it. I It has an impact on me too. So on on most days, doesn't bother me. You know, I, I carry a lot for my patients and I care for them like they'd be my own family members. But there are definitely times where something from my experience comes up um, unexpectedly, a little bit like PTSD on my end, where like just the most random thing. So for example, um, when I was going through my induction therapy, I was really sick. I don't remember a few days of being in the hospital, my fevers were very high and I had to be on a cooling blanket, which we do that for patients who are in the hospital and have very high fevers that are hard to get them down. The last time I walked into a room and a patient was on a cooling blanket, I had like a visceral reaction to that. Unexpectedly, it's been a really long time. Don't know why that happened. I mean, I just had to remove myself from the situation for a minute and then step back in once I had kind of gotten over it. But like, those things still happen because what I went through was a traumatic experience too. And even though it's way in the past, um, it doesn't really go away. And I, I think a lot of patients would probably say the same. You know, I could imagine, and I don't know, Allison, if you see leukemia patients in your current practice, but maybe you cover for them or something of that nature because of the heme world. But I could, I could picture, I'm, I'm projecting that if you're seeing a patient with some form of leukemia, acute leukemia, APL or not APL, it's hard to believe that you won't get memories back, especially if they don't do well, right? I mean, imagine a leukemia patient who is not responding or having brain hemorrhage or in DIC or something of that picture. Has this happened to you? Yeah, I indirectly do. I do. I care for leukemia patients. They're never my my sole responsibility, but. Um... There, there is something called survivor's guilt. Um, and I think that is probably the only time I, I feel that right because I can't guarantee the outcome for other people. And I'm fortunate enough that I got well and I'm able to give back in the way that I do. But not everybody's going to be okay. That is the crummy part of being an oncologist still today. We have way better treatments than we did a decade ago, but we still can't fix everybody. Um, and that part's hard for sure. And, and is the primary reason why I chose blood cancer. That wasn't exactly what I had because I was a little bit worried that being too close to home might impact my ability to take care of people. Yeah, in this, but in the same token, I could imagine a scenario where I mean, you you went through a lot of therapy for APL, uh, which was the standard at the time. Um, but we know that today APL is treated a little bit differently. I mean, the concepts are the same, but a little bit differently. And there are many patients who don't need anthracyclines, for example which usually could cause some cardiac side effects, which we'll go over in a little bit. So I can imagine it also, you know, as things improve in terms of the science and the treatment of a disease you already had, you would say, you know, I, you know, I mean, I wish we knew that back then I would have had less toxicity, less side effect, less treatment. I avoided having a follow-up echo for 12 years. <laughs> I knew it was the only thing I needed to do other than have my blood counts checked, but it made me nervous and I didn't want to do it. So absolutely. Um, yeah. It's not you know, that we are doing things with a little bit less toxicity today and still getting good outcomes. Do you still stay in touch with your original oncologist? I do. 
Um, I had a little bit of a full circle moment this last year. Um, so one, his, one of his sons actually has rotated with me in clinic. Um, who's thinking about being an oncologist. Um, two, I organized um, a CME course that Mayo put on this year as a hematology and oncology review. Um, and my doctor that saved my life was in the audience for that. So it was crazy. Um, you know, I couldn't do anything that I'm doing today without what he did back then. And so I'm eternally grateful to his knowledge base and, and what he did for me and just his amazingly calming bedside manner, which made all the difference in somebody who is a very type A and high strung person like myself. So um, it was it was a crazy moment to see him there and and just a good reminder of how fortunate I am to be here. You know, the bond that is formed between a patient and uh, their oncologist is a bond like no other, frankly. I mean, it's just uh, amazing. But you did you did uh, mention a word. I'd like you to elaborate on it a little bit. You mentioned survivor guilt, and I and I've heard that actually more more than I thought I would. Is it the fact that you feel that you survived and others did not, and you feel guilty? Like how how does this take me through your mind as you feel that emotion? Yeah, I think it's the same as people who take on like a why me mentality as a and then at the same time and on some days can take on a like well why not me like what you know i'm not special compared to somebody else so i think survivorship guilt ends up being the same thing which is like on some days like you are just grateful and just happy that you have this second lease on life and that you were able to get through what was a life-threatening experience and come out the other side and have a choice of how you live your life from that point forward. And then there's other days, particularly when you hear about people who don't get the same outcome, who are in your peer group, or people who have a child going through cancer and you're like, what? like why do nine-year-olds get brain tumors? Like, What an awful thing for a parent to have to endure. And then you feel like, why was I allowed to live and and have a good outcome here and have an experience where I can do more with my life and other people don't get that opportunity. So I think it's a, it's like a spectrum and like kind of a fluctuating thing that people feel on some days and, and other days not. And I would venture to guess that most cancer survivors feel that way at some point. And maybe it's a quick, you know, like a blip in, in time. And for some people, it's a long recovery. Survivorship is hard. Um, it's much harder than going through treatment for most patients because during treatment, there is a plan and you don't, I mean, we all have a choice and pa our patients always have a choice, but when you get told you have a life-threatening illness, you like most people choose to like, just do what they're told. So they might live longer or be cured or have better quality of life. So I guess I'm very careful to always offer to my patients, like, this is what I'm recommending, right? But like you get a choice so they don't feel like things are just happening to them. But I think most people in those situations choose to, to try, right? To, to try something and see if it works. When you were going through all of this 16 and 17 years ago, did you did it ever cross your mind that you may not make it? I got sick, um, real sick. Uh, I had tephlitis, which is a common complication um, where, you know, you get all your gut bacteria gets disrupted. You end up with a bloodstream infection and, and get pretty ill. And during that period of time, and especially with the type of leukemia I had, which is associated sometimes with DIC, you know, my doctor had told my parents, um, if we get through the induction part, things are probably going to be okay. But like, 
people who die from this usually die during the induction part. We just, we can't get them through it safely. And there was a period of time where my doctors had told my, my parents, like, she's really sick. I, I don't know if we're going to get her through this. And thankfully that ended up not being the case, but um, yeah, like I said, there's, there's days I don't remember being in the hospital because I was that sick, but, and maybe a protective mechanism, but at the same time, I, at no point, there was one day, (laughs) my parents, favorite part of my story. There was one day that I, I thought about not going back to school. So like, I kind of just was like, yeah, let's like, let's just do this. Get me better. I I have a plan here. Um, I had gone down for a CT scan at the hospital I was at and they left me in the hall. I was sick, like had high fever, left me in the hallway, no call button, didn't have a blanket. I was shivering like not well. And I was furious. (laughs) Like as a patient, I was like, you can't do this to people like this is crazy. And I came back up to my room just like steaming and was like, I have to drop out of school. Somebody has to be a patient advocate. There has to be a job for that. Surely people are employed as patient advocates. Like we can't do this to people. And I had, I was like, never been more worked up in my life. And that was the only time where I debated like not being a doctor or thinking that like I was not going to get back on track. Um, But yeah, there's was part of it that was, was pretty hairy. And is that what led you to dedicate your academic career that you want? Because for again, for listeners and some of the listeners are not, um, you know, physicians, obviously, APL in general occurs in younger uh, patient population as opposed to acute myeloid leukemia than on APL, which happens in much older uh, individuals. So is that experience what let's say, you know what, I'm going to focus on uh, adults and adolescents, uh, young adults and adolescents? Yeah. So I was 24 um, at diagnosis and just for the sake of making sure anybody listening knows the definition of adolescent young adult from a from a cancer side is age 15 to 39 when you're diagnosed with cancer so that's a pretty wide age range at the time it was before it was easy to connect with people on social media right we all had cell phones then but we didn't have facebook and um instagram and all the other ways that we can easily connect online to people who are not right where you are. And so having a diagnosis like that and spending the entire treatment that I started with in the hospital was a really isolating experience. And even today in dealing with our young adult patients who are experiencing cancer, resoundingly, that is something that comes up over and over again, which is like, where's everybody else like me? How do I find other people who would understand what I'm going through? Why don't people know that like, it's not the same as if I were nine or if I were 65? why don't people understand that this is a different experience for me? And so what people are really looking for is peer support and connection to other people who get it. Um, and so I had, I didn't have that. Um, my one connection, this may be a, a longer story than you want here, so I'll abbreviate it, but I want to hear um, it all. one of my favorite musicians when I was diagnosed had had ALL eight months before I was diagnosed. And my dad worked in radio at the time. And so through a series of fortunate events, um, I was connected to that person's manager. um, And that person called me on one of the days I don't remember in the hospital and I was too sick to come to the phone. Um, And so eventually we connected and, and his parents connected with my parents as a support system. But 17 years later, we are best friends. I don't know how I would have made it through my treatment and recovery survivorship without his support and vice versa. Um, And so as a result of that 
alliance, friendship, whatever you want to call it, you know, we were able to pull each other up when we were having bad days and and talk to each other on days where you were like, am I losing my mind? Like this survivorship stuff is nuts. It's hard. Um, he's since started an organization I sit on the board for called the Dear Jack Foundation, which supports adolescents and young adults with cancer. So I'm able to give back in that way too. And it was a vision he had when we were just coming out of our experience. Um, and it's really amazing to be part of it. So that was my that was my connection. I didn't get to meet other people. I went to the clinic and it, everybody looked like my parents and my grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when people talk about survivorship, um, there are some philosophical way of defining survivorship. I'm going to tell you my school of thought, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I believe survivorship starts from the day of diagnosis. Um, there are others who say survivorship starts from the day you're declared in remission, for example, or the day you stop therapy. Where do you stand and where do you think is the proper definition? Yeah, I mean, I, that is the technical definition, which is like all patients who are diagnosed with cancer are survivors from, from the get-go, from the time that they were diagnosed. And I don't think that's wrong. I think the technicality lies in the experience being different for people who are going to be dealing with a chronic disease versus those that were treated potentially with curative intent. So I think that survivorship looks differently for those groups of people. And I think that's where the distinction probably has to be made in making sure that we are addressing their needs appropriately. Because I think we know as cancer doctors that some of our patients are going to face late relapses or intermittent relapses or recurrences and need treatment periodically during their lifetime. And then there's plenty of patients we're going to see and they get treatment once and then they move on. I think they're all appropriately considered survivors, but I think what survivorship looks like and the issues people deal with in survivorship are different in those different groups. My, is, there, my perspective. is there is there anything, I mean, I, I find it, uh, I mean, some people might look at and say, you know, 39, that's not really an adolescent. I mean, it's not a teenager. Um, yeah. is, is there something biological or is it just the research world needed to have like a cutoff? Like sometimes we have to do cut off. Yeah. Well, why that got to the upper end, I'm not sure. Surely that age range is a big encompassing age range, right? And there's a lot of life experience and differences in maturity and just what is going on with people at the age of 15 or 25 or 35 or 39. So I think arbitrarily, sometimes that group gets cut in the middle where it's like 15 to 25 and 25 and up. And I think practically that may make some more sense. But I think in looking at outcomes, we and initially this group got called out as a unique group based on outcomes analysis, right? That we were seeing dramatic improvements in what was happening to people with childhood cancers. And we were seeing dramatic improvements in what we were able to do for adults with cancer. And then there was this middle group that didn't really have a name, didn't have a distinction, and it wasn't getting as better, it wasn't getting better as fast or as impressively. And so they got defined as their own group of being adolescents and young adults. Some of that is related to just challenges that happen in that age group, right? If you think about where you were in your teens or 20s, like people are moving around. You're trying to figure out life. Many people don't have insurance or intermittently have insurance. Some people are starting families. Some people are trying to go to school. Some people are trying to live independently. Some people still live at home. So I think where did those people end up? Sometimes in pediatric centers and sometimes in adult centers had an impact. We weren't tracking that very well. I think 
maybe rightfully so, maybe maybe not. Some people in community practice see those patients as being their easy patients because most of them get better. Most things that happen in that age group are treatable cancers and most people are long-term survivors. And so they don't make their way to academic centers to be on studies and, and to find new and better ways to do things. The, the vast majority of AYA patients actually get treated in the community, like 80% of them, which may be fine. But the, yeah. but the bottom line of that is, is they don't make it to places where we're trying to do new and, and better things. And, and you mentioned the pediatrics versus adults. I mean, I do see that completely variable based on the institution. There are institutions where they firmly believe that a pediatric hematologist and oncologist should be taking care of a uh, anyone under the age of 39 and other institutions who is like, no, there's no way. I mean, we can consult with you if you need, but this is like, you know, a primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma at the age of 30 should be cared for by an adult hematologist and oncologist. But I see that variation. Some people agree with it. Some people don't. Academically, is there any data to suggest that patients fare better if they are cared for by one versus another? I think the probably the best evidence for that is in ALL, right? So in in ALL, you know, studies were specifically done that looked at where the cutoff should be. Like, at what age should we not give people pediatric regimens? At what age do they not benefit from that? And that went all the way up to the age of forty. Um, so I think the people who took care to take care of that disease and help come up with regimens there were probably pioneers in trying to understand that like the biology is different and we really can push the envelope to make sure we have better outcomes there by giving them pediatric regimens. We are catching up a little bit in the realm of Hodgkin's because for a long time, if you were 18 and you landed in peds and if you were 18 and landed in the adult practice, you got totally different recommendations both of which probably put you in remission and cured you, but had differing long-term ramifications. Um, so I think we're getting a little bit better about that. And I think most pediatric oncologists feel very comfortable taking care of people up to the age of 25. Some push that limit a little bit, um, but they but they feel very strongly about taking care of their patients in the way that they do. I think the other challenge there and in transitioning people from a pediatric to an adult practice if that needs to happen or people who started there and then move over for whatever reason is pediatric oncology is family focused, right? That is a group that's peds, right? That is a family focused practice of medicine. And in an adult practice, we do a lot of individual practice and it's not that we ignore the family or don't take care of the family's needs, but our focus is different. We just, we trained differently and didn't have to deal with the whole family dynamic the way that pediatric specialists do. So let's talk about, what you do in a survivorship clinic like you know what you know um i could imagine that you know, i mean what is it that you need to do do you just monitor these people do you just do echoes uh, chest x-rays like uh, i mean take me through uh, um are there protocols i mean there are a lot of people who are listening who just really don't understand exactly what that means um, so try to, I don't know, I don't know how easy it is to explain it to the world, but uh, pretend that I'm in your clinic and I'm trying to understand um, what am I supposed to, what test do I need to get done? Yeah, so the Children's Oncology Group has done this beautifully. The adult side of things catching up, but not so beautifully. So I think if you have had a pediatric regimen, if they actually have a website where you can plug in drugs you got, doses you got, and it spits out for you, here's what you need for surveillance, how often they should come, what tests you need, 
and, and when um, based on your exposures. On the adult side, we have survivorship guidelines and recommendations for potential late effects of surveillance for potential late effects of therapy, but they're a little bit less clear cut and, and it's not as easy to decide from patient to patient. So for example, if you got a whole bunch of anthracycline, which we know can cause heart problems in the long term. What's the cutoff for who needs an echo and who doesn't? And that's a little bit unclear. It's super clear in the pediatric practice and how often that has to be done, less clear on the adult side. Though the NCCN has finally come up with AYA specific guidelines. Um, so there's a reference there and they get updated as often as those guidelines get updated. But in survivorship, sure, there, there are a couple things that are important, right? One is surveillance to make sure the disease has not come back, whatever it was that you treated. Two is long-term monitoring and side effects of that. Three is the psychosocial impact of what we've done to somebody to make them well and how are they gonna come out the other end and be functional. Four is all the other stuff. Like what happened to your relationships? What happened to your finances? Are we so upside down at this point you don't know how to move forward? What kind of support do we need to put in place as far as like vocational counseling? How do we get you back to school? You, had, you know, you had sarcoma, you had half your pelvis removed. How do we get you to move forward here so that you can function as a normal member of society? Those are all part of survivorship issues and things that are different. We worry about different things in the young adult patient population. What happened to their fertility? How do we do family planning and somebody who had a bone marrow transplant and now they need help planning for that? Maybe some precautions were taken beforehand so they can family plan accordingly, but like that's expensive and it takes coordination and support. And I think we fail our patients sometimes by not having good guardrails around them or in, in, in survivorship, right? We took care of it. They're not in a, in a dangerous situation anymore, but we release them with like limited guidelines and support to be able to get back to what feels like normal. There's a lot of people who refer to, to what is a new normal in survivorship, which I hate because people go through a lot of stages in survivorship. And I would be disappointed for someone to feel like a very hard time is their new normal. I think there's there's stages there and we should do a better job of helping people through that. I hope to so, be able to do that. Yeah, so 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 just to summarize, um, depends on the disease that the person had and depends on the treatment that they receive, the monitoring varies. So for mm -hmm. some people, you may need to do an echo, for others, you don't. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? Yeah. So I think we know that some of our treatments, be it chemotherapy or radiation or targeted therapies or whatever, might have short-term side effects, but also might have some long-term side effects. And because somewhere around 80% of our young adult patients are going to be long-term survivors, we have to help educate people and our patients on what needs to be watched for so that we, you know, we're on top of things if complications occur. In the childhood cancer survivor subset, which is a different population here, there's evidence that two thirds of them have at least two chronic conditions that have to be managed for the rest of their life as a result of their treatment. So like this has an impact outside of oncology down the line, primary care specialists, endocrinologists, car you know, cardiology, cardiac oncology, whatever it may be. So if we don't do a good job of educating our patients to to advocate for themselves or our partners in, in primary care to like care for these people long-term, then things get missed. The, the things that uh, that are difficult and challenging um, are the non-medical stuff, at least in my view, because, you know, we're trained to decide, for example, potentially when to do an echo or pulmonary function tests or things like that. 
But my God, I mean, somebody asks you about what they do with their finances, you're probably not going to be qualified to do that. So do you need to have like, you know, do, do you do you have a financial person you refer to? Is it just a social worker? Like how big is the team, the supportive team that needs to work with you to execute on even the non-medical stuff? So I think academic centers that have adolescent young adult cancer programs have different layers of support for people. And in most cases, I think that they are parallel to what you get normally. So it's ancillary support, extra support, age appropriate considerations for, for those patients. So in some places that is solely psychotherapy. In some places that is social work, psychotherapy, a vocational rehab person, financial counseling, fertility preservation, kind of all of the things that encompass the care of what's needed in this age group. We're just building out our program here and hope to have kind of all of those support services in place. And it would be really great to have somebody from the finance side who has enough knowledge of what issues young adults face that they could be helpful specifically there. So um, we call, you know, people who help with this population who are knowledgeable AYA aware. Um, so to have like an AYA financial counselor that's AYA aware, that would be great because there's there's two main things that happen. One. Fortunately, now patients can stay in their parents' insurance after Obamacare or whatever till they turn 26. Do you know how many of my 25-year-olds are worried about falling off their patients, their parents' insurance when they're getting cancer care? Like half oh. of them have no idea. Um, two, no one plans for a cancer diagnosis at any age. It just happens. And so 21-year-olds or even 26-year-olds or 30-year-olds have less time to accumulate assets and have actually things to be able to manage this. Otherwise, you have to move back home, drop out of school. You maybe lose your job because you have to be in the hospital every three weeks for your treatment. There's just a lot more financial burden that gets put on this population than older folks or even kids because you're nine-year-old, you're, you know, you're dependent on your parents entirely at that point. And so there are some foundations and some grants that exist solely to help, you know, organizations that raise money to help young adult patients, but there's not enough. Um, and so just somebody to help them through that part so we don't lose them to follow up or there's not an interruption in their treatment is really critical or at least to be aware, right? Do you, are you living in your car? Do you even have a way to get to treatment? You know, those are things we deal with, unfortunately, on a fairly frequent basis. That's disappointing. And then you come out of treatment with big medical bills, right? You have to balance to pay. Maybe they don't even let you come back for your follow-up because your balance is too big. You haven't paid anything. And you have to go back to school and somehow get a job and you still feel like garbage coming out of a year of treatment or six months of chemotherapy. So it's just, it's just different. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we recognize that it's not just easy for them, the better the support structures will get to be for them and the more resources we'll have available. The psychological piece, the anxiety, the depression, the self-esteem piece, how much of this you feel comfortable, you know, addressing yourself or do you feel you would like to always send to a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Yeah, I think that's a little bit where some of my personal experience comes in where I can relate to that being challenging. I, I certainly don't feel like I have the training to address it fully myself, but I can endorse that your fear of recurrence is normal. And a lot of people feel that. And that the transition between treatment and survivorship is hard. And that every time you have a headache, you're going to wonder if your lymphoma is back. Or every time you have an itchy leg, you're going to wonder if your leukemia is starting up again. And that will get better with time. I think there's a real again, with the isolation piece, with some relationships 
maybe getting stronger and some falling apart. Not everybody around you who cares about you knows how to deal with a cancer diagnosis and to support people. I think coming out of it a lot can change for patients and, and body dysmorphia and what we do to people with all this junk we put into their system to make them well. Nobody comes out of that feeling great. And then there's a slow climb back to being able to exercise and do stuff with your peers and friends and partners and if you've gone through a treatment with a significant other, that relationship is forever changed. You know, not everybody can endure the stress of this um, stuff. So I think the psychological part probably is the longest lasting part. And we try our best through psychology, through cognitive behavioral therapy, through social work, through peer support groups and networks to make sure people feel supported in that transition. But it can be hard. Yeah, some, some some personal relationships um, don't survive and others do others become stronger and um, other relationships uh, get weaker and they decimate yeah but yeah. i i mean in your teens 20s and 30s there's a lot of self-identity stuff that happens sure and if you don't know what you identify as other than a cancer patient coming out of treatment it's hard to get your footing again yeah so in, in the in the world of survivorship and AYA research, um, what kind of trials are you doing? What kind of research are you focused on? Like, you know, what are the what should we know about like the top three, four research ideas or studies that your field is looking at and exploring? So um I think doing trials that are interventional trials with drugs specific to this age group is hard. So what happens instead is some of this age range goes on pediatric protocols, some of this age range goes on adult protocols, and there are some that are finally encompassing the full age range so we can actually decide what the best treatment is for AYA patients in, in some ways. So I personally am not doing a lot of research in that space, though I think it's important because I do think there is some biologic difference in somebody who has follicular lymphoma at 25 versus at 75. I think something different has to happen there, um, as well as other things. There's There's been a, a pretty significant increase in the number of younger patients being diagnosed with GI cancers, colon cancer, and so there's a lot of research being done in that space as well. That's one of the places where the incidence is shooting up faster than we can comprehend it. Um, more so, what happens is there's a lot of research being done in trying to minimize toxicity minimize late effects of treatment, and then improve outcomes. So a challenge with this patient population is getting them engaged. <laughs> so getting their attention and keeping their attention, and that gets worse with each generation um, that has further access to TikTok and social media, where your attention span only has to be three seconds. Um, so getting their attention and keeping it is actually a focus of research in the AYA population, which is which requires patient focus groups and feedback from the patients we're trying to serve. So there's a big push for AYA patients to be involved in the design of any studies in which they might be participating, because if we don't get their feedback, they don't go on the trials. Um, so, so I think that's a big thing and probably different than a lot of what we do in pediatric or adult patients. We have a survivorship skills group that we've put together and are piloting here to see if that might be impactful. The only other place we could find that had done any sort of survivorship training um, as far as like, here are some skills that would help you in survivorship. These are the things that people often navigate without a lot of guidance um, was in Australia. 
Um, the Australians are are like a decade ahead of us in the U.S. in doing any sort of AYA work. Um, and so we're hoping that something like that might be beneficial to patients down, down the line. There are places that are piloting apps and social media ways to capture patient reported outcomes a little bit more accurately in this population because they don't answer portal messages. They don't come in for extra visits. They don't want to do questionnaires. Um, so they are like choose your own adventure types of almost like cartoonish short things where we can capture some of that information. And then interventional things that are just that they want to, that these patients want to do something they have control over. So if you offer them a study like here, we're going to put you on an exercise program to minimize your risk of cardiotoxicity. They're all about it, right? It's a little bit hard to sign 70 year old patients up for that. Um, if, if like, hey, this is going to be a study to make sure we minimize the impact that any sort of chemo brain feeling has on you. They're all about it. They want they want to do those things. So symptom control, outcomes, survivorship stuff, they're about it. Interventional stuff. Otherwise, you have to find a good hook to get them interested. I won't take much time. I just have a couple of questions and then uh, I'll let you go. But um it's it's difficult to let you go because it's so enjoyable to really chat about everything you're talking about. It's really very interesting, but I have to say, you alluded to this a little bit, you know, to capture some of the young population, I kind of feel like, do you have to use TikTok, Instagram, Twitter? I mean, this is where they are on, right? Like, in, I'm trying to think, let's say you have a, you want to give the, give a message to somebody, whether it's educational or whatever it is, do you need to get on TikTok and Instagram to capture these people? Because that's really where they are right now. Yeah, I think social media is a helpful thing for these patients. So I have a friend and lymphoma survivor who runs a very popular social media account um, that is largely meme-based, um, but he connects people literally all over the world. And when we had a an activity that was AYA-centered that that person posted on their social media, we got responses from eight countries in two days. So definitely a reach there that we can't get otherwise. My younger sister is in her 30s. And even then, like if I call her, she doesn't answer the phone and she'll text me and say, what's up? And I'm like, I just called. She's like, I don't have time to talk, right? So I think that is true of most of these patients. They always have their cell phone within arm's reach, but they're not gonna answer a voicemail. Nobody listens to their voicemail. They're not gonna answer an email. So I think that is a really important- So are you, are you, are you utilizing that? Like, are you out there like trying to- are you on the social media platforms? I know you're not very active on Twitter, but do you need to be? I am a little bit. I have a hard time trying to separate like personal social media from like professional social media. Um, and I prefer to keep my personal part active. I'm trying to get Mayo to wrap their head around that being important for this patient population. Um, we're getting there. I think I I honestly think it's I really believe it's important whether it could be like simply educational. I think the attention span of people is becoming shorter and shorter. And I think if you have a message, let's say you want to tell people to get an echo if they had something, you can do a one minute Instagram thing or something. And I think you'll get more people listening to it and and watching it. So I I applaud these efforts if you're working on it. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, I know that you've written a, a book um, and, and 
jealous of you having enough time to to make that happen because it was an important publication. Um, I joke with my young adult patients all the time that I'm going to write a book on survivorship when I get to take a sab sabbatical about you know about the experience of being a young adult cancer patient and the journey of survivorship. And I'm going to call it "When Can I Get a Tattoo?" You <laughs> all of my young adult patients ask me at their end of treatment visit, "When can I get a tattoo?" And we have to have that conversation about commemorating. You actually, that should uh, and, and I could tell you, um, you there's a there's a, there's a lot of hunger for for the people to to humanize medicine and to humanize uh, the stories, and and um, they will learn a lot from you. So I I would hope that you um, just start. It all starts with a couple of words and then things trickle down and you know just try whatever comes to your mind and then you edit later yeah i've got some chapters laid out i just need time to do it well i think you're gonna do it and i'm gonna be the first one to buy that book oh, um okay. anything i should have asked you allison that uh, like related to aya research survivorship that you think i missed i want to make sure folks get a you know kind of like a rounded view of the topic I don't think anything you missed. I just, I just hope that anybody who listens to this gets a little bit of a broader perspective on this being an, a unique population that's often overlooked, and and that if we really are going to take exceptional care of these patients, we have to realize that their that their needs and issues are different than some of the other patients we get to take care of and interface with, um, and they deserve good care too. Well, Dr. Allison Rosenthal, inspiring as always. Thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate everything you're doing for patients, for yourself, and everyone else outside. And my pleasure. Thank you. Folks, thank you for listening. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you tuning in to this inspiring episode with Dr. Allison Rosenthal from the Mayo Clinic about her career journey and her physician-patient journey. Don't forget to let me know what you think about this podcast episode and other episodes, and let your friends and colleagues know about Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support, and I appreciate your dedication and sharing this podcast with others. Rate it, subscribe to it, and if you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to click the like button. Before I let you go, I'm gonna leave you with a saying from Socrates. I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. Until next time, take care.